Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. Our guest tonight is Dr. Tom Horvath, who is the president of Smart Recovery, president of Practical Recovery, and the author of Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, a workbook for overcoming addictions. Our other guest, uh, Helga Matsko, had to cancel because she had hurricane damage and a power outage. She will be rescheduling for a later in the month, in a few weeks, perhaps. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little ad here, a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. If you want more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our first guest is Dr. Tom Horvath, and I'm going to welcome him aboard right now. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to have you. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Smart Recovery. What is uh, Smart Recovery? In simple terms, Smart Recovery is a free support group for people who want to abstain from any substance or activity addiction. In a little more detail, Smart Recovery is an international nonprofit organization that offers free, self-empowering, science-based uh, support groups plus some related services and publications. And how does Smart uh, Recovery differ from AA, which people are maybe more familiar with? Yes, and I think that is a good comparison because that's the organization most people at least have heard of. But the organizations are similar in that they're both abstinence oriented and free of charge donations requested, but the program of recovery is very different in each of these groups. Smart recovery is a self-empowering versus a powerlessness approach. And I often explain that difference by quoting the serenity prayer, which is widely used in AA, God grant me the serenity to change the things I uh, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. An AA approach is primarily about serenity. A smart recovery approach is primarily about courage. To be sure, in recovery and in life, we all need some balance of both serenity and courage and, of course, as much wisdom as we can get. But the emphasis on the two different programs is different. And in smart recovery, we're focused on learning how to cope with craving, for instance, how to change dysfunctional thoughts, how to live a balanced life, and with courageous and persistent effort, learn to live in a different way so that addiction fades into the background. So that's a self-empowering approach. And the meetings, therefore, are different because they are discussion meetings in which people interact with one another in a very lively way often and learn tools and strategies, whereas in an AA meeting, the format is uh, around one person speaking after another and not necessarily interacting with each other. It doesn't make one organization better or worse than the other in general, but one organization might be better for a particular individual. Does Smart Recovery have anything to say about a higher power? Um, Yes. If you believe in one, we encourage you to believe in it, and if you don't, then we accept that you don't. Uh, It's really not, it is not a part of our program in any way. So we know from our membership surveys that most of our participants do have some form of higher power. 
uh, but probably for them it's a God helps those who help themselves kind of God, and uh, it's not a part of our program. So you don't talk about that at at smart meetings? It, it would probably only come up by some comparison to AA, but it's, it is not at all in our materials or our approach. Okay, and the website, it's smartrecovery.org, is that correct? Yes, that is the website. And I've visited the website. You have a lot of tools on the website. Can you tell us about some of the tools of Smart Recovery? The two fundamental tools in Smart Recovery are the CBA, the cost-benefit analysis, which usually begins with the question, what do I like? Let's say it's drinking. What do I like about drinking? And proceeds to uh, what don't I like or what costs does it have? And people generally discover by conducting a cost-benefit analysis that the satisfactions, goods, gratifications of drinking occur right now and the costs occur later and the costs are uh, often substantial. If they have become substantial, then it may be time to change. And another of the two, the other basic tool is the ABC, where A is an activating event, B is an underlying belief, and C is an emotional or behavioral consequence. The idea of this ABC exercise is to show that it is not activating events that cause emotional consequences or uh, behavioral consequences, but rather our interpretation of them. In fact, last night I was uh, conducting a smart recovery meeting, which I do from time to time, and we were discussing um, the extended experience of having something happen to you that at first seems to be a disaster or a catastrophe and later on you come to think of it as a blessing or at least a kind of blessing and what's changed is not the event uh, that's already in the past but the interpretation of it or, or how it's perceived and often we can be very active in identifying a dysfunctional belief or interpretation and changing it and that kind of discussion often happens in a smart recovery meeting. So where does this ABC model come from? The ABC, using that terminology, was developed by Albert Ellis, who is a, a very famous, recently deceased New York psychologist, world-famous psychologist, who developed rational emotive therapy, and then he renamed it as rational emotive behavior therapy. He credits uh, Stoic philosophers going back to... Uh, the pre-Christian era who recognized that it was not events themselves but our views of them that caused us happiness or distress. So it's, if you could say it this way, a, a modern technology that applied an old idea uh, quite successfully for many people. Does the smart recovery have historically any connection with rational recovery? Yes. The Rational Recovery Network got started in the middle 80s by a social worker named Jack Trimpey, and it spun off uh, an informal network originally called the Rational Recovery Self-Help Network, which became incorporated in 1992 and changed its name in 94 because there was some tension between uh, Trimpey and that board of the nonprofit, and the, the nonprofit changed its name to ultimately Smart Recovery and just took, took on a separate existence. So Rational Recovery still exists, uh, as far as I know, in the Sacramento, California area and perhaps some other locations. Uh, his book, the small book, is still on the Smart Recovery uh, reading list, and he has written some other 
books as well. He's a good writer, and he's, uh, his work appeals to a lot of people. Yes, I've read the small book. I thought it had a lot of helpful things in it. Um, there are, I, if I can remember correctly, four uh, principles that guide smart recovery. We talk about the four-point program. Yes. It's a little different than the 12 steps because you don't necessarily go through them in order, although there is a logical sequence to them. The first one, well, we say it this way, we teach methods for, one, um, maintaining motivation, which is in some ways the fundamental problem of overcoming addiction. Uh, you need to stay motivated. Two, coping with craving. Uh, three, uh, addressing and resolving where possible one's problems, one's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, uh, sometimes shortened of just problem solving. And lastly, living with balance. Uh, there are many balances one needs to uh, achieve in life between sleeping and waking, working and playing, social time and alone time, uh, pleasures and work, and those those balances need to be considered uh, to establish a long-term recovery. So those four points, motivation, craving, problem-solving, lifestyle balance, are what we organize many of our discussions and tools around uh, to establish a solid recovery. Is smart recovery widely available? Not as widely available as we would like in face-to-face -face meetings. There are about 650 meetings worldwide, mostly in the United States. So there are large areas of the country where there are no face-to-face -face meetings at all. It is available on the Internet, uh, which works for some people. And there it's really a 24-7 experience because we have people in all time zones and we have materials in eight languages. The website primarily operates in English. So if one can use the Internet, then it's widely available, and face-to-face uh, -face it's more restricted. But there is a list on the website, smartrecovery.org, of uh, where to find the local meetings. Well, I know many people that have gotten involved with our HAMS harm reduction program have used the harm reduction as a stepping stone to abstinence, and we've often re recommended they go to SMART, and they've uh, spoken very highly of it. So uh, many you know, people participating in our group are participating in SMART recovery as well, online or in live meetings. And, and let me add to that that SMART Recovery considers its meetings available for people who have chosen to abstain or who are considering abstinence because we recognize that not everybody will choose to abstain, nor do they necessarily need to abstain. And the one distinction that we make is our meetings are open to anybody, and we're not trying to tell anybody what to do, but we do restrict our discussions to how to abstain, and if people want to use that information to abstain or do something else, such as moderate or cut back, that's fine, too. That's up to them. But we are, even though we state that we are an abstinence-oriented organization, we are fully supportive of harm reduction, and we're happy that the HAMS network is in place. Tell me a little bit about practical recovery. What is practical recovery? Whereas Smart Recovery is a nonprofit organization um, that I am closely affiliated with, Practical Recovery is my own for-profit uh, company or practice, which is based in San Diego and has office-based services and a residential treatment facility and a sober living home. So we're in three locations relatively close to one another. 
and we offer the same general kind of self-empowering approach to recovery that both the HAMS Network and Smart Recovery offer, but it's offered by professional uh, clinicians and other service providers uh, for varying fees depending upon the service available. I think we're one of the few, we may be the only, I'm I'm not sure, maybe you would know better, um, but probably the only um, professionally oriented uh, harm reduction program in the country that offers a full range of services. I think that may be the case. I know a lot of private practitioners do, and then there's, the, of course, the Harm Reduction Therapy Center with Pat Benning uh, in San Francisco and Oakland, but I think that's a little different in the way they operate their uh, approach. Uh, how how many clients uh, can you deal with uh, at Practical Recovery at one time? Our residential facility has a maximum of six beds. Our sober living home, also six beds. And the sober living clients are typically also being seen at the office. At the office, we could at any one time have, oh, 100 to 200 active cases. But some people might only come in once a week for a group or once a month for an individual session. Other people are are coming three or four times a day. So there's tremendous variability. One of the uh, main points of our approach is that we're completely flexible and collaborative so people can establish any kind of schedule they want within the normal working hours that we have uh, in order to facilitate uh, services that would be meaningful to them. And one point I want to make, because sometimes it's confusing to people, while people are living in our residential facility or sober living home, it is a requirement of the home that they are abstaining from the usual substances while they are there, but we're happy to discuss moderation or harm reduction when they depart, and they're they're not obligated to live in those homes in order to receive services at the office. So we're about as flexible as, as we can be, consistent with also providing a, a safe place and a haven and refuge for people who would like that while they're in an early recovery phase. So it's both an outpatient and a residential service. You don't have to be involved in the residential service to access the outpatient uh, services? We have tried to place as few restrictions on being here as possible. So, yes, there there are, um, beyond the usual requirements of establishing an appointment and showing up and paying for it, um, there were really no other requirements about how to access our services. Um what is uh, Practical Recovery's position on the idea of cross-addiction, that if you're addicted to one substance, you're addicted to all, and you have to abstain from everything? I think that's not a very helpful idea. <laughs> so uh, some people you found, uh, for example, could kick a heroin habit and then be a moderate drinker? Yes. Uh, I'm not recalling immediately uh, certainly, uh, someone who's done that theoretically, I think. Well, now I am actually. Uh, theoretically, I think that's completely possible. I encourage people to make their own decisions about these issues because, just as with exercise, the best exercise plan is the one that someone will actually do. Uh, the best recovery plan is the one that someone will actually actually do. And if someone's motivated to abstain from heroin but try moderate drinking. I'm happy to give that a try. I will ask a lot of questions, which I think it's my responsibility to ask, 
like what's your history of moderate drinking in the past, and if you haven't been a moderate drinker before, why do you think going off heroin would, would now make you one? I, you know, that's a question I'd be very interested in the answer to. But if somebody's been a moderate drinker all along and doesn't particularly like to drink, which is um, a couple of the instances I'm recalling, I, I wouldn't have any immediate objection to it with the understanding that if problems arose, we would revisit the issue. Well, I've encountered people in my oh, own support group here, the hands group, that uh, that have had that experience. Uh, for example, they they never were big drinkers. Uh, what got them in trouble was crack cocaine, and they just wanted to uh, lay down the crack and not change the drinking because it was never big or problematic. Yes. Yes, in fact, I think one of the big ironies of the field, and this just occurred to me some weeks ago, is that the notion of chemical dependency which is often used to exhort people to abstain, quote, from everything, unquote, is really a harm reduction concept. You may get a kick out of this, because in the notion of chemical dependency, you are not expected to abstain from overeating or caffeine or nicotine. But overeating and nicotine are much more likely to kill you than any of the other substances that you're being encouraged to stop. So... I think of it ironically as this harm reduction concept that does, if people do abstain from everything and and if they had problems before, their lives are undoubtedly better, but they still may be killing themselves with eating and smoking. So I assume people will choose the route that makes the most sense to them and that it's our job or my job as a professional not to get in their way and to help them find that route rather than insisting on a particular route. Well, I think that people do have to decide what their worst addictions are and, you know, and what they can still deal with. Myself, I mean, my biggest addictions were television because I could watch TV all the time and never finish my schoolwork and not graduate from school. I had to, you know, get the TV out of my out of my house completely just to, you know, be able to function. Yeah. And uh, my other one was cigarettes, of course, which were uh, very hard to deal with um, alcohol was easier for me to actually say you know you know one or two days a week of drinking is enough because if I drink anymore I don't like it you know right so yeah. and I did find that I, I like a cigar once or twice a week but I don't ingest any other nicotine at all now mm-hmm. but cigarettes I can't you know do that with you know, cigarettes because of the delivery mechanism just, you know, gives me that big nicotine rush all at once, and I just get totally addicted to them. I I have come to believe that in the unprotected encounter with a craving that's strong, most of us are going to lose. And that, for me, is a kind of a validation of addiction as a disease. Now, I want to say that I don't personally view addiction as a disease, but I work with whatever my client thinks because I don't think that's worth fighting about. And I also don't think it's particularly relevant one way or the other to recovery or treatment unless somebody thinks it is, in which case I'll work with that. But I, I do know from personal experience and from the experience of many people, if you are in a craving situation and particularly if your willpower has been a little bit depleted by any number of reasons, um, it's going to be a very difficult situation for you and we have to build up our recovery resources 
over time, and it sounds like you have done that successfully, and and now you're helping other people do it. Uh, so that's that's a great assistance to people who I I hope are taking advantage of your network. Thank you. I do think it's really important to meet people where they are at, and that includes everyone. If someone is invested in the 12 steps, if they go to AA, if that is working for them, we should you know say. Excellent. We support you in that because I have so many colleagues in needle exchange programs and other harm reduction programs that did, you know, they got over their uh, heroin habit or whatever habit to uh, 12-step programs. And, you know, I just want to be totally supportive of them in that. Yes, I agree. Now, tell us a little bit about uh, your book, Sex, Drugs, Gambling, and Chocolate, a workbook for overcoming addictions. I wish that I could say that I had chosen the title, but it was actually the publisher who did that. I'm I'm fond of the title. And the book uh, is focused on recovery as opposed to addiction. So certainly the effects of addictions to those four activities or substances and any any number of other ones would be quite different. Your Your consequences are very different from heroin, say, than from pot or from gambling. But the process of recovery is relatively the same. So this book is focused on the process of recovery and, again, regardless of of substance or activity, and lays out a series of activities that could move one through that process to achieve either abstinence or moderation or to assist in cutting back, leaving that decision up to the person. And uh, although one publisher rejected it because they thought that it, people wanted to buy a book on specific substances or activities, uh, ironically, most people with addictions have multiple addictions, so they can use one process for all of them and not have to keep learning something different because it's a different substance. Well, I think it's true that uh, the techniques generalize a lot across substances, but then there are a lot of people that uh, have only drunk alcohol, basically, or alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, the legal drugs. And, you know, when they hear talk about uh, illegal drugs or heroin or needles, they get so scared they, they'll stop reading the book. So, <laughs> Well, in my case, I don't actually talk much about any of the specific substances. I'm really focused on recovery. So I don't think there's anything in there that would scare people away once they started reading it, although maybe the title scares them away. I don't know. It, it's sold enough books to have stayed in print, so I assume it's doing some good in the world, and I'm pleased about that. Well, I think it's a very good book. I got a copy a couple weeks ago. I've seen it before in the library. I had it checked out, but I was uh, rereading it. I uh, got a new copy, so I would be able to talk to you about it a little bit. Um, so... Uh, do you talk about the stages of change model in here? A little bit. It's a model that, that's helpful to many people to recognize that they've either made it. The, the big divide is have I made a decision to change or am I still working on that decision? And in the working on it phase, then there are certain kinds of things you do, thinking, for instance, about a cost-benefit analysis. And then in the action and maintenance phases, you're focused on coping with craving and building up a positive life. So uh, those stages go in sequence, and uh, the book is organized in the same uh, time sequence. 
Uh, what are some of the ways to cope with cravings? Well, uh, thank you. That's one of my favorite questions. I think that people need to know three fundamental facts about craving. And this is important and useful for anyone. It doesn't matter whether you consider yourself addicted or not. The first fact is that craving could be hunger for food, uh, desire to have sex, a desire to get the attention of other people, some urge to get something that you can feel in an almost physical way, that that urge or craving will go away without any effort on your part if you just wait long enough. And that's usually seconds to minutes. It, it might be 15 or 30 minutes. One can prove this. You don't need to take my word for it. One can prove this by just letting that process happen. And that's really the central fact about craving. So that's one. Number two, Craving in itself uh, is not harmful to you. You can have a craving for half an hour, and it's distracting and irritating perhaps and annoying, but it doesn't damage you. And three, craving in itself does not force you to do anything. I think all of these facts, these three facts, can be confirmed by personal experience, and they parallel the facts about anxiety, which uh, therapists, working with anxiety disorders have been talking about for decades if you have panic attacks for instance the panic attacks will go away if you just wait the panic in itself is not harmful to you and three the panic doesn't force you to uh, run out of a grocery store for instance you can still stay there even though you feel bad for a while so time limited doesn't harm you and doesn't make you do anything and once people understand those three facts about craving they're in the position to outlast them and gradually go through this, typically it's about a 90-day process, uh, that results in the cravings mostly going away, not entirely. Now, if you're an ex-smoker, you know that in the first days or weeks of stopping smoking, the craving was probably quite intense. But now, if you're years behind that experience, you may hardly ever have a craving it's that transition period that's difficult and people need to keep their courage up. We talked about courage earlier. Keep the courage up to get through that period and having gone through it, you really can start to think of yourself as recovered if you, if you want to do that as opposed to just being in a permanent form of recovery. So there's a hopefulness about knowing about these cravings, that they're a natural occurrence once you build up a habit of using something, but they will go away with time. Well, it's certainly my experience that uh, I have no interest in cigarettes anymore. Actually, I never really liked being a cigarette smoker. I didn't start with cigarettes. I only switched to cigarette, cigarettes when I went to college, and there wasn't time to smoke a pipe or a cigar or something nice between classes. And that's when that whole addiction started. Hmm. But, yeah. You know, so you it, by... Uh it was just a change in circumstances that took you down the wrong path for a while, but you got back on your original path and things are fine now. Well, I did have to change my original path. I was a pretty heavy pipe smoker when I was uh, before college. Uh, so, but, you know, I realized, you know, I don't want to be addicted to this substance. I don't want to have it control me. I, I'd say, you know, two cigars a week is my maximum because you know, if I'm going to smoke more than that, I'm going to start getting the habit again, and you know I'm not going to be able to put it down. I like to smoke outside, so generally I don't smoke all winter long here in New York. And I had mm. four months. I had four months off last winter because it was a cold winter. Ah, huh. 
a natural boundary. Or, yeah, that works. So it works for me because I want it to just be recreational. I want to be in charge and not to be controlled by a substance. Yes. And I think that points to how underlying values ultimately help people overcome addictions, even though addictions can be very powerful. But our values and goals are even more powerful when we fully get in touch with them. I think so. Of course, I couldn't go to an AA meeting and talk about wanting to be in charge. (laughs) No, that's the wrong venue for that discussion. It is indeed. Well, I think I think that we are running out of time, so uh, thank you very much for being our guest tonight. What's the website now for Practical Recovery and Smart Recovery? Smart Recovery is smartrecovery.org. Practical Recovery is practicalrecovery.com, and we have a second website for our rehab, which is reunionsandiego.com. The two of them are linked together. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Tom. Thank you, Ken. It was a pleasure. Okay, everyone, come back next week when our guest will be Bill White, the author of Slaying the Dragon, A History of Addiction Treatment in the United States, and Ron Siegel, who is the author of The Mindfulness Solution. Thank you, everyone, and good night.